episode 123 of the Two and a Half Marks podcast. My name is David Stabbins. Sober this time, folks, as always, joined by my good friend Angelo and Lisa as we rewatch, we live, remember different wrestling pay per view every single week. Um, I will not be apologizing for the quality of last week's pro- uh, programming. I went to an Oktoberfest earlier that day. I did not expect to get as drunk as I was. I feel like. I played my way into shape as the, as the, as the you James hardened your way into the podcast. I like I was like, I was like Lakers Shaq, you know, it's like he shows up 350 pounds at, uh, at, uh, a, a, like training camp. And then by the, uh, by the end, by the time it really matters, he's, he's putting it fucking down, you know? I mean, luckily you had a great coach who can, who kind of covered your weaknesses to start off until you're ready to take over the show again. Yes. Angelo, I have always said that you are, uh, the Phil Jackson of podcasting. You're weird as shit, and you're probably into some absolutely freaky sex stuff. Uh, I will either confirm or deny. Yeah, uh, but yeah, uh, I am. I, I am 100. My my blood alcohol content is at 0.0 percent right now because we are recording this at like 10:45 in the morning on a Sunday. Uh, so I'll be I'll be doing all my drinking later. Uh, Got ready for Dolphins Eagles. Oh yeah, dude. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm not going to the game, but I will be here, uh, sweating my ass off, uh, wearing wearing my Tua jersey, hoping that uh, fucking uh, Jalen Carter doesn't like eat him. Uh, that guy's a fucking freak of nature. Yes, he is. Be a great heavyweight. Yes. Speaking of great heavyweights, we got the big boss man on this show, folks. Uh, and you know, if this is a, uh, we are going back to a time period that we haven't really hit in quite a while. Uh, we're going back to early nineties WCW as we head towards the Hogan era. Uh, I believe this is when a period where Hogan had signed with WCW, but they hadn't really figured out yet how to debut him. I think they might've still just kind of been doing like, Oh, oh, Mean Gene Okerlund is hinting at a big signing for WCW. Call the hotline to find out what's going on. Oh, ho, ho. <laughs> oh, ho. Uh, you know, 1-800-909-9900, folks. Um, and, but it's, it's the, the winds of change are blowing here in WCW. The arrival of Hogan will eventually, uh, about two years later, change everything for WCW and for the wrestling world. Uh, but as we head towards a new chapter of WCW history, we're kind of closing out the old chapter. Uh, if you, if, For me, when I think of like late 80s, early 90s WCW, one of the first things I'm thinking of is the legendary rivalry between Ric Flair and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And here in the main event at the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago, Illinois, Five years on, and in the same building from where they had their most legendary pay-per-view match at Chi-Town Rumble, which is a show that we have covered on this podcast. Do you think CM Punk was in attendance for either of those? Uh, I have no idea. Uh, I Possibly. I know that uh, he he did uh, do some very hype shit with Steamboat in Ring of Honor in the uh, early 2000s. Uh, but... Uh, we have Ric Flair and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat in one of their final singles matches and their final pay-per-view singles match, facing off one more time for the WCW Championship. And we got a whole lot of other stuff on the show. We got four title matches in total. We've got a couple hardcore matches. Um, 
yeah, we've got, you know, Cactus Jack taking some fucking crazy bumps. We've got the Great Muda versus Stunning Steve Austin, which is a match that did happen. Can't believe it. Steve Austin versus Great Muda, that happened. Wasn't as good as you might have thought. We'll get to that. But overall, a show that had a lot of different stuff on it. And I am much higher on it, I think, than you were. I, I pretty much enjoyed it cover to cover. Uh, I, I wouldn't say there was anything below, like below mid, you know. I mean, I could care less, and in fact, I thought it was kind of boring. The Chicago Street fight was just until the end. I thought it had a very wild finish that really kind of like I said, "Oh shit!" To which one was the Chicago? Sh- that was the tag team match. That right? was the tag team yeah. match. I'm gonna say a sentence right here <laughs> that I have never said in my entire life, and never expect to say again. I thought that Nasty Boys match was really good, and I liked it. <laughs> I, th- that's, oh my god. The fact that you said that hurts my ears. That was a wacky fucking, a wacky fucking showdown, and I loved it. Yeah, I mean, look, I still thought it was good. I love this period of WCW because it really does feel like sports entertainment. Uh, like, they made it feel very professional. Um, it felt like there were a lot of, like, you know, they put the rules and regulations in place. You had Nick Bockwinkel feature prominently on the show. Um, the opening promo package, too, I loved this promo package. I've never been more hyped because they really did help sell this match. It's like, look at all these different dream matches we really have. We have Diamond Dallas Page and Johnny B. Bad. We have Steven Regal and Pillman. Yeah, Diamond Dallas. <laughs> we have Steve Austin versus Muda. We have Sting Rick Rude. Free over DDP. <laughs> <laughs> But like they they sold all these like and they had Vader boss man Flair steamer yeah. like they they talked about them and like it felt like dream match and like all right this is why I paid to see the show we got these big names Dustin Rhodes versus Bunkhouse Buck we got Bunkhouse match uh so like I I, I love this intro and I love this period because they I think they really do a great job of making it feel like a real sport which is something that you know I think as time has gone on it's become less about the sport aspect of it outside the fact that there are wins and losses but you know this was a fun time mostly I loved the opening couple matches I thought that the main event matches were um with the exception I think Vader boss although Vader boss had its own interesting moments um like they, they the hype matches generally were at least good but then you have like the hardcore matches um you know muda austin was maybe a a disappointment when you see it on the pay-per-view uh card and then you go watch the match i have my own very serious issues with that match and it doesn't have anything to do really with muda or austin uh we'll get there so like it, it is good i enjoyed it i had a fun time watching it it's just, you know, I, I, the, the things I enjoyed, I really enjoyed. And then when there was a lot, I could le- uh, take or leave. Yeah, I, I, by and large, really enjoyed this show. Um, again, uh, you know, some very interesting matchups up and down. You get uh, some, some different some different flavors. You get a couple hardcore matches. You get, a, I mean, this, this wild brawl between the Nasty Boys and, and Cactus Jack and uh, that, you know, Kind of feels like something stupid you would have seen in ECW in 1996, you know, a couple of years previous. Um, it's, uh, you know, yeah, Flair Steamboat in the main event, and you know those guys are always going to deliver. I would say that that it was probably like my least favorite of the big Flair Steamboat matches, but um, it's like you said when, like before we went on air, before we started recording, um, that's like 
saying it's the worst meal at a five-star restaurant. Like it's still better than almost anything you're going to see. And I generally did like, and I agree with you, like that match isn't as what it could have been, but I thought they told a very clear and concise story without it being too monotonous. Yeah. Um, it is. I mean, again, it's, it is, it is, uh, it's flair and steamboat two of the, Two of the greatest of all time, one of the greatest in-ring rivalries of all time, and two of the guys who had some of the best chemistry ever, you know, built over wrestling each other. For I mean, how many total cumulative hours have those two men been in a wrestling ring together in their lives? Like, unfucking toll. I mean, like, counting, counting, uh, you know, house shows, because, like, there were times in, like, 89, 90 when they were wrestling each other every night, and they were doing, like... 40 plus minutes every night and sometimes doing double shots where they were wrestling each other twice in the same day for like, like a total of like an hour and a half. I mean, like it's, it's, it's pretty nuts. Like the amount of time Flair and Steamboat have been in the radio, like, like up there with like up, up there with like, uh, probably any two people, you know what I mean? Like ever in wrestling, like total number of minutes spent in a wrestling ring together. Uh, that would actually be really interesting. I don't. I don't know how you. I'm, do I'm that pulling. It, I'm pulling up cage matches to, to just get numbers so we can maybe do some estimation by the time we get there. You would. I mean, like, I. I would be really fascinated. I, I don't know how you would do that. Uh, that that analysis because I don't know if cage match has like times for like house shows, but I would love to know like who were the people who had the most total amount of time in a ring together. Uh. I would I would venture to guess that Steamboat and Flair are up there. Um, but yeah, uh, overall, I think a pretty fun show with a lot of different stuff on it. And like I said, I, I wouldn't say there's anything on the show that is really bad, which is a very rare to say for any WCW show at any point in WCW's history. But let alone the early 90s where you had had some had some great. Great wrestlers, some great wrestling, some very memorable matches, but also a lot of absolute dog shit. And looking at the card, uh, it seems like they they saved the dog shit for the uh, the dark matches, and then they just let us have the good stuff. So um, I appreciate that. But it sounds like, Angelo, we are ready to remember some guys. Let us remember these guys, David. Let's remember some guys, folks. It is April 17th, 1994. We are at the Rosemont Horizon. In Chicago, Illinois, with a crowd of 12,200 people in the building. See WCW Spring Stampede 1994. And a, a couple interesting notes here in the uh, on the dark matches. Before the broadcast, uh, we had uh, the Part Partridge Family star Danny Bonaducci. Versus Brady Bunch actor Christopher Knight in a dark match that apparently got a lot of like kind of tabloid publicity. Huh. Um, Danny Bonnet. Yeah. I mean, like two like kind of child actors from like popular like sitcoms uh, from like the 70s. Uh, Danny Bonaducci goes over in a match that Dave Meltzer says, quote, is said to be incredibly horrible to the point that it was perversely entertaining as bad comedy, unquote. That sounds like my kind of content. Yeah, I want to see this shit. Danny Bonaducci's last match until 2009 when he wrestled Eric Young in the pre-show for TNA Lockdown 2009 
at the Lyacurus Center on the t- on the campus of Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I can't believe they have a professional wrestler on uh, Bonaducci's Wikipedia page. I mean, he has had two total matches, and folks, that makes him a worker, makes him one of the boys. But yeah, uh, <laughs> Dynamite is at the Lyacurus Center this week, and you can say that uh, Danny Bonaducci and Kazuchika Okada have wrestled in the same building. Folks. The house that Bonaducci built. Okada is jacking Bonaducci's shit right now. Uh, But yeah, Spring Stampede 1994, uh, as WCW hurdles towards the Hogan era. Like you said, I think it was the previous month we had gotten Hogan. Hogan had signed officially with uh, WCW. I think they were doing little vignettes where he's like hanging out with Mean Gene on the like they were doing the ones where he's like on the set of Thunder in Paradise or whatever. It's a really fucking stupid buildup. Um, like a, a, around his show that no one gave a shit about. Um, and then I think it was like the next month, month after he signed with uh, WCW and becomes a full time wrestler for that company. Uh, also in the uh, dark matches, wanted to mention this. Uh, not to be outdone by the Bonaduce stuff, folks. Dave Sullivan suffering uh, apparently a serious knee injury in the other dark match where he tagged with his fake brother Kevin Sullivan against Pat Tanaka and a fake Japanese name, a fake Japanese guy called Haito, a.k.a. former pro indoor soccer player Pat Diamond, uh, who made a whole career out of wearing a mask and pretending to be Japanese, even though he was a white guy. Huh. Uh, yeah. But uh, that's. Uh, we, we talked about this. We talked about this before, right? Generico. Every single one. Oh, I mean, I guess. Sure. But uh, not not played for laughs and goofs like the Generico gimmick was. They were like, this guy's Japanese. He knows martial arts. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of shit. Um, but so we've got uh, we, we talked about this before because we've done a few of these like you know, WCW shows from this period, like all early 90s through mid 90s WCW. You can always count on Kevin Sullivan getting way more screen time than he should. <laughs> and thankfully, we don't have to see hide nor hair of Kevin Sullivan on this show. Fortunately, guy who was at one point uh, friends with my dad. I've heard nothing but positive things about him as a guy. But as a wrestler, I have no interest in watching him at all. I mean, clearly loved the business, clearly cared about the business. Uh, yeah. Just not someone I want to watch. Famously uh, cared about the business more than he maybe cared about his own marriage, uh, perhaps. Um, so we will lead off. We got Tony Schiavone and Bobby the Brain Heenan on the call. Enjoyed this commentary booth all the way through. Tony Schiavone. Um, there are two great eras of Schiavone: AEW Schiavone and then WCW Schiavone. Before he had his heart and soul just crushed by how shitty WCW got. <laughs> 90s. Um, like before that, he was really good. <laughs> um, so Shivani and Bobby the Brain Heenan on the call. We lead off with singles action. Johnny B. Bad, the uh, like the 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 one of the great WCW curtain jerkers of all time, uh, firing off the confetti on his entrance and taking on Dirtbag New Jersey heel Diamond Dallas Page. My hero, your hero, the the king of Jersey. Diamond Dallas Page, along with the Diamond Doll, his IRL wife, Kimberly Page. Uh, you know, DDP, uh, relatively, like, you know, DDP, like, didn't really start wrestling until he was, like, in his late 30s. 
um, which is kind of an kind of an inspiring story, like kind of a you're never too late to follow your dreams type of deal with DDP. But uh, noticeably, like a lot thicker than he would be in kind of his prime peak run. He looked huge. Yeah, DDP comes out, and I was like, man, that's a bigger version of DDP. That's a big boy. You know, we 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 uh, we expect to see. You know, we. We love, you know, we love DDP, right? You know, Jersey Triad DDP, big time 97 babyface DDP. This this guy looks a lot different than that DDP. Um, he uh, we get a we get a pretty fast back and forth start between these two guys. Um, they are turning turning each other around again, over and over again. Um, Johnny B. Bad does this crazy like headlock takeover where he like bridges out of a dragon sleeper and then like jumps all the way up, so he's like completely upside down and then takes him over. I am not nearly as athletic athletic enough to do that. Uh, but that's something that DDP strong ass fucking base for being able to hold him up like that. So respect to DDP who is a powerhouse in this match. Uh, DDP hits a big back suplex, gets heat on him for a while. Uh, then we get Johnny's big comeback. We basically go comeback straight into the finish here. Uh, short and sweet. Uh, Johnny fights out of the chin lock, hits a back suplex, hits his comeback, Manhattan drop into a big clothesline, flying head scissors, big running plancha to the floor, and then off the top rope, diving sunset flip into the pin, one, two, three, Johnny B. Bad over clean in the opener, five minutes and 55 seconds, uh, in terms of kind of, uh, you know, as, you know, for for uh, like a curtain jerker type of match, you know, you want something generally uh, that's that's uh, kind of fast paced, simple, easy to easy to follow, kind of gets the crowd into it. I feel like this this does a perfectly good job. Yeah, real fun match. I mean, you know, at DDP in the uh, you know quote unquote rest holds, like. I don't know. I thought the rest holds looked good. I know that's like up there with the, hey, they had a DDT and a suplex here. But like, I don't know. There's a lot of times when you're watching rest holds and you're just like, this just is clearly like a pause in the action. It felt like the, you know, the submissions being used felt, you know, more meaningful. I don't know what that says about either guy, but uh, it, it stood out to me. But yeah, the finish was super fun. Um, you had DDP selling an atomic drop, which is always entertaining. And we even have the god of selling atomic drops on the show later. Um, but yeah, Johnny B. Bad always is a fun time to start off with like WCW shows. Just super fast-paced, super fun, more athletic than you remember. Um, the the planchet to the floor was, you know, insane for the time of 1994. And then that sunset flip, man. Perfect. Picture perfect. Johnny B. Bad, Mark Marrow, a great athlete. I've, I've said this many, many times on this podcast. Whenever we have him, I feel like he's one of the more underrated guys of this time. I just think that he was entertaining, really athletic. I mean, the guy is fucking built like a fucking hoss. I mean, like, oh, yeah. Act, but he's very athletic. He was one of the first guys doing the shooting star press on TV. You know, he's a he's an entertaining guy. He can, you know, was doing a lot of things that athletic stuff that you weren't really seeing on American television for a while. I'll say this. I think he's a guy and there's probably not a long list of these guys, but you could put him in an er- any era. And he pro- like this is probably the worst outcome you could probably ask for, which is a guy who's always entertaining in an opening match. Like you could put him in, in any era and he'd be successful. Yeah, I will. I, I, I'm not going to go into this this rant. Uh right now because it's going to take too long and it's, no one's going to give a shit about it but like I hate that fucking 
Now, now that now that uh, you know, I, as 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 uh, as I, a guy in the business, yeah, I, I kind of hate that. Like, like people use the term rest holds. You know what I mean? Like, I've never like I've never heard another wrestler use the term rest hold before. <laughs> That's not like a term that like wrestlers like usually use. Like, we don't say like, oh, we need to we need to use a rest hold here. You know what I mean? Like, it, not was really, it a heat spot or what, what do you call it then? A lot of times it's just kind of a transition, you know what okay. I mean? It's six minutes. It's six minutes long. Both these guys, neither of them are going to need to fucking rest. Yeah, you know what I mean here. They could they could go straight through. It's the, not a rest hold, you know. Like the, it's, it's just a transition to get from the end of the heat to the beginning of the comeback. You know what I mean? It's, then I thought their transition holds were very good. It's a very easy way. Yeah, it's a very easy way to transition you, to transition in between stuff like that. You can you can slow it down and get there and then go from there. Right. Um, like it's just a, it's just kind of a, a, a little stopping in between phases of the match. I mean, no and one's the, like I think the term rest hold that people I mean, like I hear people use it. But like when I've, I've never heard someone calling a match and putting together a match and like using that term, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I get that. And I, uh, I'll make sure I say transition holds going forward. I but... mean, you can use whatever you want like that. <laughs> It's a term that people use, but I also think it's kind of a misnomer a little bit. A lot of the time. Mm -hmm. I I don't say it like out of slander. Like there are definitely times where you see people in these like transition moves that, hey, we've been here for like five minutes. Can you please do something? Um, But no, yeah, just the holds. The the holds were good. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me being fucking pedantic. But at least at least in my experience, that's how I have that. That's kind of how I see it. Uh. Next up, we have got uh, Mean Gene and Jesse the Body Ventura. We are introduced to our two kind of uh, like a, uh, interviewer guys. Um, Jesse the Body Ventura, by the way, this insane shaved head ponytail look. He looks fucking wild. Um, and uh, Mean Gene making a couple allusions to uh, Jesse the Body Ventura, you know, maybe getting a big deposit in his bank account. Uh, if you if you notice that, Ange, a uh, couple illusions there. Jesse the Body Ventura just that week had received a nearly million dollar judgment for videotape royalties in a lawsuit against the WWF. Bravo, Jesse. He had just he had just come into some money. I don't think that they had he had gotten the payout yet, but he had gotten the uh, the judgment from the court. I'd also love to know how like those calls went. Like if you called that hotline, how'd those calls normally go? I have no idea. That's actually a really good point because they used to – I mean like wherever Mean Gene went, you know, WWF and then they took it to WCW when he went to WCW. Constantly fucking hawking this hotline. I have to assume um, it was like like a pre-recorded message. Yes. I mean it, I'm, I'm sure it was but I'm, I'm very interested as to like what – like yeah. like It's like you said. Like what would you actually hear if I called 1-800-909-9900? Because they say they pay by the minute, so is it is it pre-recorded? Are you actually talking to somebody? I'm not. I don't expect to call the hotline and actually speak to me, Gino. That would be really <laughs> cool. But uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's just a pre-recorded of just whatever the fuck. You know what I mean? But uh, yeah, uh, very interesting. Very interesting. I might I might have to look it up and see if there is any uh, like any like if someone had taped it and if it survived somehow. I bet I bet there's a chance that there's something on YouTube somewhere. Of just like, hey, this is what the WCW hotline would have sounded like in 1994. I don't know. Bring it back. Bring back the hotline. Next up, 
a guy who uh, had had plenty of uh, plenty of crazy backstage shit happen that I'm sure was all over the hotlines back in the day. It is flying Brian Pillman challenging Lord Steven Regal for the World TV title, our first of four championship matches on Spring Stampede. Steven Regal, accompanied by his manservant, his butler, whatever, uh, Sir William, also known as Memphis Territory star, babyface once upon a time, Bill Dundee, who is an Australian guy. Uh, Pillman lights him up at the start, hits a uh, Japanese arm drag, a move that I have heard many times described as the fakest, most nonsensical move in pro wrestling, the Japanese arm drag. Um, and for some reason, it's called the Japanese arm drag, even though no one in Japan does arm drags this way. They <laughs> do arm drags the normal way, just like everyone else. So I don't know where the fuck that term came from. Uh, Pillman works over his arm in the opening stage of this match, throwing it into the post, you know, all this stuff. Um, and Regal is able to slow it down, apply some of his evil British scientific wrestling a uh, very smooth spot here where he catches him in a leapfrog and goes straight into a Northern Lights suplex. I love that. It looked great. Uh, yeah, working him over with a bunch of holds. There's a very cool spot where uh, Pillman, uh, or he goes for a single leg and then rolls through like very fluidly into an STF, then turns it into the, the rings of Saturn, which uh, looked awesome. Pillman uh, counters a powerbomb into a Hurricane Rana, but then Regal hits a rolling power slam. Stays on him, puts him in a bow and arrow, put, uh, hits this uh, like an ankle pick and turns it into a half crab and works him over. We're getting, uh, you know, he is getting his shit stretched by uh, Regal as the crowd is chanting USA, USA for Brian Pillman. Regal, I, I, I gotta say here, because you're mentioning all these submission holds that Regal is doing. He looked like a jacked up Zack Sabre Jr. with some of these transitions, man. Regal was working this boy over. I mean, it looked great. Looked like he was stretching uh, out some dough. Yeah, he he really he really did. Uh, Regal looked fantastic in the ring in this match. I mean, just such a such a fucking technical legend. Um, but yeah, Regal Regal's great. Uh, then uh, we're we're starting to get uh, the time cues called by ring announcer Gary Michael Capetta as we approach a fifteen minute time limit that had been announced at the start of the match. Um, and as we're really approaching this time at the time, now we get Pillman's, uh, big fiery comeback. It's a drop kick and ends big anti-air drop kick, catching real coming off the middle rope as we hit like the minute mark does get the big comeback, but it just comes a little bit too late. They both tumble over the top rope to the floor and Pillman, uh, takes a shot and knocks out Sir William right as the bell rings for the time limit. Time limit draw in an even 15 minutes, and uh, Steven Regal retains the TV title. Enjoyed, I oh, by and large really enjoyed this match. I thought Regal looked fantastic. Oh yeah, no, this was uh, this is maybe I think this is my favorite match on the card, and for a lot of reasons, I thought like it just made a lot of sense. Perfect, you know, mid card kind of feud here with a very hot young babyface and just like a technical heel who is just complete shit-eating like style where he's like you you hate this guy you love to hate this guy um and a finish too like I I is it a fuck finish kind of yeah because they do the time limit draw and you know i think we see a lot of time limit draws to get that five more minutes but i like the fact they didn't do that here i think it's just like hey cool you had 15 minutes to beat me you didn't beat me goodbye um perfect way for a heel to retain the championship because it's just like i want this guy to lose and even though he is still technically champion 
He wasn't beat. He's still not beat. Yep. Um, by the way, semi-related note, uh, give me all your Lexus King stock. I've loved his promos the past two weeks. I am all yeah. in on Pillman Jr. Let's let's hope that it actually really because I mean I, I I've seen it. You've seen it a few times with 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 Brian Jr. Right? Like he's a he's a he's a kid that obviously has talent. He's got a good look, but has never like really found anything beyond just being brought Brian Pillman Jr. So yeah. the I think the the promos have been pretty good, and it's it's interesting because like how many fucking times have we seen in like especially current NXT where it's like someone is someone's kid, right? Yes, mm-hmm. who is the the kid of a fucking uh Braun Breaker? Char- I, I was I was about to say the other guy in this match, uh, his son is in NXT. Charlie Dempsey is yes Dempsey. You know, like I mean, like Braun Breaker is like the is like the uber example, but you can find other examples. Briggs and Jensen or Briggs and Jensen, well, Von they, Wagner. Well, they no. Here, here's what I'm saying. Okay. Not not guys who are the son of a previous wrestler because no one's really going to care that. Uh, let's be honest. No disrespect to Bull Buchanan. But no one's going to give a shit about that Brooks Brooks Jensen is Bull Buchanan's kid, right? Um, like, where where someone you know, Braun Breaker's a great example. Curtis Axel's a great example, right? Mm-hmm. Someone is the son of a very famous wrestler, and they make allusions to it, but it's never expl- But they just have a different name for apparently no reason, right? Yeah. Like, why is Braun Breaker like we have Braun Breaker here? He's obviously a Steiner. He looks and wrestles and speaks just like the fusion of both of the Steiner brothers into one person. We're going to have Rick Steiner on screen appearing as his father. But for some reason, his name is not Braun Steiner. Why is it Braun Breaker? Why would he just take a different name? You know, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like in kayfabe, wouldn't that be like the family name? Yeah. Thing with uh, Curtis Axel. You know, he he talks about, you know, Mr. Perfect being his dad all the time. He looks just like his fucking dad. Uh, why is his name Curtis Axel? Why wouldn't his name be, you know, whatever, Hennig or whatever, right? Um, they never, like, they never give an explanation for why you would have a different name. But this is, like, the first time they've ever actually explained, And like, it's a great reason, too. Yes, this is Brian Pillman Jr. You know that he's Brian Pillman Jr. We're going to have a big part of his character be the fact that he is Brian Pillman's son, but he has a different name, and here's why. It's perfect. I, I was like, holy shit, they actually explained it. They never do that. <laughs> I was like, cool, that's awesome. Yeah, all Alexis King's uh, st- uh, stock, I'll take it. But yeah, yeah back, b- back to the match. Uh, again, super fun. You know, Pillman's a great baby face here. Regal, you know, really does stretch the man out like uh, pasta. And it, Brian has some really fiery chops here. Like this is a very underrated chop fest between both these guys. And they just echo through the arena. Super fun. Uh, good way to end the match with Pillman's like lo- being booked strong at the finish yeah. to make it look like, oh man, if he had just five more minutes, he would have won rather than like actually doing the five more minutes and just letting Regal guy dodge with the title. I love this match. It's super fun. Yeah. I thought it was really good. Uh, Regal again looks fantastic, and and I think it's this is like this match is a good counterpoint, and like like a lot of a lot of Kurt Angle's career as well. But I, I, this match made me think of I feel like there's a common conception in wrestling that like a heel should never be able to like out wrestle the baby face, mm-hmm. and I completely fucking disagree with that. 
You know what I mean? Like, and I think this is an example why it's like, yes, Regal is better technically in the ring than this guy. And when they when he's able to get a hold of him, he can fucking ground him down. Regal doesn't really do anything cheap here. No, he's a better wrestler than he is. But Pillman, the crowd is still behind Pillman and he still gets his shit in and he still gets a great comeback at the end. Then, you know, it, it just runs out of time. Like, I, I don't think that there's any reason why a heel can't out wrestle a baby face at times, you know, I don't think that he should make him look like shit or anything, but like the heel should never be able to out wrestle the baby face straight up. I just, I hear that a lot. And I just, I, I think like it's cause it's like, Oh, who, who's the crowd going to like, the crowd's not going to want to get behind the baby face. If they see him like getting, getting out wrestled. And it's like, motherfucker, how many people are fans of shitty football teams? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, or like, it's like I, I always like my, my counterpoint to that is like the fucking Tom Brady, New England Patriots were better than every other team in the league every fucking year and beat everyone all the time because they were better. But everyone still fucking hated them anyway. Yes, I actually think it's a great comp because we did not like who they were, you know, like it's such a great comp, too, because like this, this felt like uh, more of a style, like a style to make fights kind of thing. It felt like sports because these two are very different. You know, Regal looks good when he's doing his stuff. Pillman looks good when he's doing his stuff. Hell, Pillman had a strategy to start off this match targeting uh, Regal's left arm. How often do we ever see a babyface have an actual strategy when it comes to a match that's beyond like hoganing up or just being like the baby face and hitting his spots like he yeah. was like i'm gonna target the arm even though he's a high flyer i'm gonna target the arm and wear him down so that way he can't use that arm for submission makes so much sense I, it I felt could, like a sport i like that i liked that a lot i thought I, I thought that was kind of a facet you don't a lot of, you don't see a lot of the time where you see a guy do that in, in a match like this as a baby face someone like pillman in this position in a match where you're telling this kind of story um i thought that was i thought that was interesting but yeah like I hear people say that and it's just like, it's just something I completely fucking disagree with. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like people who say that are like the, a lot of times are the kind of wrestlers that like have no interest outside of wrestling and never see anything else. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it, I, feel, it feels lazy too. It's like, yeah, any, it feels like it's like, a, okay, I can book this match easier because this person actually doesn't have to look good because they're the heel. It's like, yeah. Yeah, I, I just it's something that I, I hear and that I disagree with. I don't know. I to eat to each their own, but it's just not something that I agree with. Um, and I think Regal in this match especially is a, is a great example of why that I, I don't think that's true. Um, next up, we have got a promo for the upcoming bunkhouse match. We've got Colonel Robert Parker, one of my favorite managers ever uh, with bunkhouse buck. Robert Parker has always dressed exactly like Colonel Sanders. Um, he cuts a promo where he uh, implies that Elvis might not actually be dead, which I want to know what he's uh, what, what information he has on that. Um, and uh, Bunkhouse Buck calls, uh, you know, they're, they're talking shit about Dustin Rhodes and by extent, Dusty Rhodes. Uh, Bunkhouse Buck says, my good time is here. And he calls Dusty Rhodes a, quote, 10 cent drugstore cowboy. Wow. That fucking hell of a fucking line. Great line. Um, next up, tag team Chicago Street Fight, which is a Falls Count Anywhere or just fucking brawl. It is the Nasty Boys, Jerry Sags and Brian Knobs, who are the reigning tag champs, but not putting up their titles on the line today, taking on one of the legends of hardcore, Cactus Jack, 
and Max Payne. Max Payne, a guy who was just a big-ass motherfucker, um, who hardcore WWF fans might remember uh, in, like, 1995 as Man Mountain Rock in WWF, a guy who used to play an electric guitar in the ring. Uh, which was pretty cool. He had like a w- he had an electric guitar that was shaped like the WWF logo, and it was actually pretty fucking bad. That's pretty cool. I, I want one. I want to put that shit up on my wall. It's actually really fucking cool. I want Man Mountain Rock's electric guitar. This match, as you can imagine, immediately turns into a wild brawl all over the Rosemont Horizon. Uh, guys beating the shit out of each other with uh, broken pool cues everywhere. Pure chaos. We've got chairs being used. We've got. Uh, Max Payne and Brian Knobs. They, like, so we have Payne and Knobs pair off, Mick Foley and Jerry Sags pair off, and they fucking fight everywhere. We get Max Payne and Brian Knobs brawling up the aisle to a souvenir stand that had been set up kind of in one of the tunnels. Um, I, I doubt that they were actually selling real souvenirs there. I'm sure they probably just set this up for the match. Um they brawl around the the stand. They're throwing full trash cans at one another, um, which can be very dangerous, actually. Um, we get a bunch of unprotected chair shots to the head. We get a spot where we're over here at the souvenir stand. Max Payne slams Brian Knobs through a table that has all this merch all over it, then rips down a Nasty Boys t-shirt off of the wall of the souvenir stand and shoves it into Brian Knobs' mouth, which was badass. I did like that, though. Um, I will say that. Then eventually Jerry Sags gets over there, whips uh, – the, the, the two nasty boys whip uh, Payne through the wall of the souvenir stand, and then they pick up a table and hit Cactus Jack in the head with it a bunch of times. Baby faces turn around. We end up fighting to the ramp. Cactus Jack hits Jerry Sags with a swinging neck breaker on the ramp, hits him with the table, and then – I, I loved this. He, he hits him with a table, and then Brian Knobs comes from off screen and just brains him with a fucking shovel. Like, just s- smashes him in the fucking head with a shovel. Um, and so, this was the... This this ending part was crazy. Um, it's just the classic Cactus Jack. No regard for his own life. Um, so they have the table. They set it up on the ramp. Jerry Sags and Cactus Jack get up on top of this table. I'm assuming... Jerry Sags is going to hit Cactus Jack probably with a pile driver through the table. But when they both get their uh, weight on it, the gimmicked table breaks without them doing anything. So the, they, the, 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 it breaks, and they're just kind of standing there. And then I can just hear Mick Foley call it to him, just throw me off the ramp. And he just tosses him off the ramp and he splats on the concrete like seven feet below, which is this is Mick Foley in the early 90s. You know, that motherfucker is taking at least one <laughs> bump on the concrete per match. He splats and he wasn't even supposed to today. And he fucking does it anyway. Splats on the ground like a fly on the fucking windshield. Uh, no wonder this guy can't fucking walk anymore. <laughs> um, he splats on the concrete. Jesus fucking Christ. Then we get this like big execution style shovel hit on the ground to Cactus Jack. Jerry Sags pins him to win it for the Nasty Boys in eight minutes and fifty nine seconds. And then the part that I died laughing at. So Jerry Sags pins Cactus Jack on the floor, and then the pans to up the ramp. We still have Max Payne and Brian Knobs fighting each other. They're still sort of 
you know, still sort of tussling on the ramp here. And then you see, coming from the background, Jerry Sags pick up a broken shard of the table and sprint all the way up the ramp, holding the table above his head, and he just whacks Max Payne with the fucking table. And Max Payne is, is dead. I was fucking dead dying laughing at that that was so such a funny visual of him running up with the fucking broken table and uh yeah um horn and dave Meltzer. this was uh you know you know big brutal match they fucking kill cactus jack uh dave Meltzer reports that this was because mick foley was planning to take some time off to get surgery on his ear which only a few weeks before was the very famous cactus jack vader match where Mick Foley had had his fucking ear get ripped off, right? I've mm-hmm. heard that story. Um, but Mick ends up in the coming week changing his mind and deciding not to get the surgery, and he's back in the ring a week and a half later. Good lord. Ear fucked up forever. God bless Mick Foley, man. Um, what a yeah. fucking insane person. Yes. What a fucking psycho. Yeah. <laughs> This was not for me. Uh, largely just not super interesting for my end. There were a few like cool moments. I love the shirt being shoved down uh, one of the nasty boys' throats. I thought using the table and suplexing the table onto somebody was like a very interesting, you know, hey, that makes a ton of sense and is a creative use of the table that still weaponizes it. But I think the star of this match is the sound of the shovel to the skull. Oh, my God. Oh, positively brutal. The first time I heard it, I'm like, oh, that's sickening. And then they do it the execution style for the finish. And, like, props to them for doing that and selling it that way because it really did feel like attempted murder. And so it makes a ton of sense. But, I, yeah, this was just, like, for me, not super interesting. Like, I, I'm glad you had fun. Uh, the tape know me i love dumbass bullshit dude <laughs> they, they, they do the same they do the same like stupid split screen moment granted they don't do a lot of it in this match but they do have it uh this was a match for me i could have consumed in a gif okay i mean that's that's fair enough but you know me i love dumbass bullshit like this um and yeah i mean like there were a few like there there were a few like all i can ask for and shit like this is like there's like a couple fucking standout spots that i'm gonna be thinking about for a while and that i mean mick audibly to like hey let's go back to the tried and true throw me off (laughs) and i'll splat on the ground like an insect yeah also while my last note this is less big meaty men slapping meat and more large plump dudes playing punisher yes that's exactly what it is (laughs) um but yeah mick that you have uh the Brian Knobs coming from off screen with the shovel and just kablamming Mick's brains out. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck am I watching? That was a sickening sound. Jerry Sags running. You can <laughs> see him running all the way up with the fucking, fucking table and hitting him with it. Dying laughing at that. I mean, oh, man. <laughs> like, that visual of Jerry Sags sprinting up the ramp holding the shard of table is in my fucking brain. I, I should specify running it should be in air quotes. I mean, he was, he was moving. He was, he was getting there, you know, I just, just dumbass bullshit, but I fucking enjoyed it, man. I really did. I, I really did enjoy it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think, I think this is the best nasty boys match I've ever seen. And it's one that they don't do any actual wrestling in, which I think maybe tells you something, but, 
Uh, yeah, dude, I fucking love this. I, I have to say. Uh, like, the more I think about it, I think the more I realize just how deeply I love this match and how just overwhelmingly stupid it was. Uh, but you know what? You need shit like this sometimes in your wrestling. Helps break up the show. So uh, the next match is coming up. We get a brief Johnny B. Bad promo where he says he wants a shot at the winner of tonight's stunning Steve Austin great Muda match for the U.S. title. He'll shock the world, prove that he's the best wrestler of all time. I've been saying it for years. Johnny B. Bad, the best wrestler of all time. That match is up next. We've already got Michael Buffer out for this one. Pretty early in the card to be going for Michael Buffer here in the WCW. Um, the great Muda, as always, insanely cool. Chal- challenging the U.S. champ, stunning Steve Austin, who comes out accompanied by Colonel Robert Parker. Uh, two, like, inner circle legends of pro wrestling here. One of the greatest, most popular Japanese wrestlers of all time in the great Muda, and one of the greatest, most popular American wrestlers of all time in stunning Steve Austin. Of course, later, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Um, this match doesn't really deliver on what it could be. It's mostly mat work between two guys who are very good technically. Um, and that that aspect of it is good for what it is. But it kind of really brings the crowd down after the, the chaos of the last match. I will say this, though. The crowd did seem pretty into Muda as a babyface. Yes, I did notice that. When 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 the match, especially when the match sped up and he kind of gave them a reason to kind of like... Uh, for them to get up, they did clearly respond to Muda as a babyface and thought that he was cool because Great Muda is fucking insanely cool and has a very nice, like very interesting move set too. Yes, Great Muda is a guy that like we talked about it with some people. Um, like I remember talking about it with Laparka, for instance. But like there, there are some people who like you can identify them just like if it was just their silhouette. And just like watching them move around the ring and do certain things, like you can say, that's that guy. Just yep. by the way they move, who is one of those guys? Because he just moves in a different way than every other person and just does shit. Everything he does is like his own version of it. Semi you know related I mean? when you bring up that point, it's kind of like I'm immediately thinking of Matt Cardona showing up in GCW, imitating like he's John Moxley under like a robe. And hits a yeah. Death Rider, and you're like, oh shit, it's Moxley, and then he pulls off the shit, and it's fucking Cardona. Exactly right. I mean, that's exactly right, though, because it's like, you, like, he did, like, he made you think of Moxley just because it's like, Moxley has a way that he moves, you know, and it's like, you just kind of just, you know, like, no one else really moves like him, right? Like, the swagger of how he walks and shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, he's he's another good example, right? But Muda is, like, one of those guys where it's just, like, you can identify him just by his silhouette. You know what I mean? He could be wearing head-to-toe all black, and you would be able to tell that it's the great Muda, right? Um, but, yeah, mostly, like, slower mat work type of match. Um, you know, uh, Austin back suplex. Muda comes back with a brain buster and his, uh, his great elbow drop with, yeah, another move that no one else did like Muda, the way he fucking flings his arms all around everywhere as he jumps in the air and does the arm and elbow drop. Um, again, technical work that's very good, but the crowd isn't really into it for most of it. Um, we get Colonel Parker trips Muda on the apron. Austin hits him with the running high knee, and uh, Austin gets heat on him. Um, we get Colonel Parker choking him on the outside. He gets his licks in in this match. Um, 
Austin, you know, he, he Austin works him over for a while, does the ab stretch spot where he's grabbing the rope and the ref is catching him. Um, Muda comes back, hits Austin's uh, old finisher, the stun gun that like uh, that like flapjack into the ropes. I popped hard for that. I was like, oh shit, he did it. That's so cool. Did the stun gun? Um, he does his handspring back elbow. Uh, one of one of my favorite moves of all time is his handspring back elbow. Um, he uh, you know, the crowd really getting into Muda as a babyface as this finally speeds up towards the end of the match. Top rope Rana takes out Colonel Parker with a spinning kick. He backdrops Austin to the floor, hits a big pescado to the floor onto both uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin and Colonel Parker. But wait a second, the bell has rung. By the, hey, did you know? That in WCW at this time, if you intentionally throw someone over the top rope, it's a disqualification. By far the dumbest rule ever imagined in wrestling to date. Motherfucker. Are you serious right now? Uh, Especially because as we will get to in a little bit, the next like three matches... They do the same thing like 50 fucking times and there's no disqualification. The only time that it happens is in this match. Like one of the matches that I wanted to see the most. Yep. Uh, So Stone Cold Steve Austin wins by disqualification because he was getting his ass beat too bad by the Great Muda and got thrown over the top rope. And Stone Cold Steve Austin retains the U.S. title, the WWE U.S. title in 16 minutes and 29 seconds. Cut off right as this shit was starting to get good. I mean, fuck you. Fuck yep. you. Yep. Fuck you. Yep. Fuck you, Commissioner Bockwinkle. How dare you do this to me? Yep. This this was this was not like man, I saw this on the Wikipedia. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be fun. This is gonna be a treat. And like you said, it's very much more technical than you think it's gonna be. And it's not bad technical, although there are a lot of headlock takeovers here. Like it feels like they uh rely on that a lot. But, you know, once you get to Muda hitting the stun gun, it really hits a pace that you're really, like, excited for. And you're like, oh, boy, this is we're starting to get some shit here. Um, and then it ends with the stupid over-the-top rope DQ rule, um, which leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And also, like, if you look at how this card kind of stacked up, we already had a time limit draw for the television title. Here we have a disqualification for the heavyweight title. And, you know, we'll get to the main event. But... There, there's a level of these finishes that you can't keep rely like it, it, dusty finishes, right? Like you can't have them all the time. And this is one like, yeah, you have a bunch of creative ways you can end the match that don't make it conclusive, where you can have the heel retain without actually pinning the baby face. It just sucks and is stupid and is not something that we really enjoy. Like this was really starting to become a very fun match. Uh, at the end there, and then you end it with this stupid over-the-top rope bullshit. Yeah, I know. We're, we're really building up to something good here. Um, I'm going to be pedantic and correct you because I'm an asshole. The dusty finish term does refer to, like, a specific type of fuck finish. Okay. The one where it's like, oh, the baby face wins, but then they turn it around because he got, like, DQ'd right before the he got the pin or whatever. Ah, uh, okay. Like, that's, like, technically the dusty finish. But spiritually, yes, they're all dusty finishes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a spiritual truth rather than like a rather than like a literal truth here um figure like, it's it's a figurative dusty finish it reminds me i was thinking of this match the other day this kind of reminds me of it um 
the AJ Styles Shinsuke Nakamura match at WrestleMania. Oh God. Teen, I think it was after Shinsuke won the Rumble, where it's kind of this like dream match between this like great American wrestler and this great Japanese wrestler. They're getting this big fucking this, like nice big stage, and they build it up slow, and then right. As we uh, like it starts to heat up and we're getting going and the, you know, the, the Japanese wrestler who the crowd is into as a baby face is getting their comeback and starting to fucking starting to turn this shit up. It just ends. Right. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, there's a, a, you know, I mean, that was even worse because Shinsuke turned heel. But like and then just, Shinsuke's gimmick was I'm just going to low blow everybody. And you're just like, oh, you're like, you're it's like, OK, here we go. We're getting there. They're, they were building this up slow and now we're getting there. Right. And then it's just, oh, it's over now. Yep. Yeah. I, I will say, though. At- this is worse. This is worse because it's such a stupid rule. Mm-hmm. It is applied just completely, like, just just inconsistently, yeah. right? We see this uh, multiple times throughout the rest of the show with no DQ. It only happens here in this, uh, in, in the finish of this match. And it's so annoying. You know, we've had Muda on the podcast uh, a few like few times recently, and the more I see him, the more clearly I see just how much like Oscar has been inspired by him. Very like Oscar so. today feels very much like a Muda clone, and I mean that in all the best ways. Like the way she comes out, the aura she projects, how she connects with the fans, like everything feels very much to try for Muda, and, and it's in the best way possible. Uh, I like Oscar when she debuted. Like the first time I saw her, I'm like, this she she's fucking insane. I love every Oscar match. I don't think I've seen a bad one. And even when she's getting booked in weird ways, because her booking has been all over the place in WWE. Um, always entertaining. And I think it's for a lot of the same reasons why Muda like in, encapsulated audiences. Yeah, uh, it's it's you can definitely see the influence there. I mean, and Muda's a guy that heavily influenced a whole generation of wrestlers in Japan and all over the world. But yeah, I think Asuka is definitely someone who you can see the, uh, the heavy influence. A lot of Asuka's gimmick is like the female Muda, very inspired by Muda, if not lifted from, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but that's great. You know, I mean, again, People have been people have been stealing shit from Muda for generations and, and will continue to forever. Wrestling is a business where you're just stealing shit and trying not to get caught. Pretty much. Uh, and then if 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 you do get caught and someone calls you out on it, uh, you either say it's a tribute or if you're CM Punk, you just say, hey, go fuck yourself. I don't care. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, next up, we've got a uh, Dustin Rhodes promo with uh, Jesse Ventura. Amazing look here for Dustin Rhodes. Wrestling in jeans, cowboy boots, and a cutoff University of Texas. Horns down. Horns down. I almost fucking lost to Houston last week. Who the fuck would do that? God. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Had to clear my throat. Anyway. Um, next up, third title match of the day. It is the man they call Sting. Challenging, ravishing Rick Rude for the television title. Sting, or not, not the television title, rather, the international title, which was a, another mid-cart belt that existed for a little bit in WCW, represented by the famous Big Gold Belt. Um, Sting, uh, as the babyface, gets a great reception, as always. Bobby Roode, or fucking Bobby Roode, Jesus Christ, I wish it was Bobby Roode. Rick Roode, uh, Rick Roode gets on the mic. He starts doing his classic fat, out-of-shape sweat hogs promo before... 
Harley Race, the legendary uh, Hall of Famer and at the time manager of Vader, gets uh, shows up, takes the mic. He says, I'm here on behalf of Vader. Vader wants to challenge the winner of this match, whoever it may be, for the international championship. Vader's got next. And so Sting responds by beating the shit out of Harley Race and uh, sending him on his way. We're off to the races. He uh, beats the shit out of Rick, uh, Rick Rude at the beginning of this match, suplexes him on the floor, beats his ass, clotheslines him out, uh, which should be a disqualification. He clotheslined him over the top rope, but uh, that is not a disqualification here. Um, three big jumping elbow drops. He works a front face lock for a long time before Rude is able to pick him up crotch him on the top rope, and then clothesline him over the top rope to the floor again with no disqualification. Uh, Rick Rude gets heat, beats him up. Very, very long chin lock spot here. Uh, but as I'm starting to get bored, Sting fires back, gives Rick Rude three consecutive atomic drops. If you've ever seen the Rick Rude uh, selling atomic drops Twitter account, know that it's some of the funniest shit ever. Comparatively weak sells by Rick Rude on these atomic drops. It really didn't live up to what, when I saw Sting pick him up for it, I was like, oh boy, here we go. And it, it was kind of, eh. You know? Yeah, it was just tippy toes looking like he had to shit himself. Yeah. But like, like, which is how he used to sell it, but he used to go insane with that. Yeah, you know? it wasn't over the top. It was very tame. It was very tame. It was very much like, I don't really have time to go do the full sell because we got to get going here, you know? Um, so, yeah, we get, uh, he takes, uh, by the way, also uh, Rick Rude's pants around his ass for this entire comeback. And so like, you can see like the edge of his butt crack. Um, you heard, wait, you heard the fan, you heard the, all the women in the stands cheer the loudest pop of the night is rick rude's ass i mean if, what, what do you expect <laughs> have, you, have you seen that guy jesus christ man um but yeah so seeing as his comeback this crazy fucking uh back body drop where rude like over rotates super hard and like lands on his feet and stumbles <laughs> it was like crazy um ref gets stacked in the corner we get a stinger splash in the corner and the ref goes down Sting locks on the Scorpion Deathlock, but the ref is out. Harley, Vase and Va Harley Race and Vader come in. Sting sends them on their way, but that allows Rude to chop block him. Uh, and Rude is setting up for his finisher, the Rude Awakening Neckbreaker. But then Harley Race gets in with a chair, tries to swing and take out Sting, accidentally hits Rick Rude. The ref wakes up at just this moment. And off of the chair shot, Sting gets the pin. And Sting is the new WCW International Champion. 13 minutes and 9 seconds. And Rick Rude sells the shit out of this uh, this uh, chair shot. They, like, cut back a few minutes. Like, we got a couple minutes of, uh, like, Heenan and Shivani talking after this. And they cut back after this. And he's still, like, stumbling to the back. Like, he still is, like, not able to get up. He sells this motherfucker. I mean, his nose was bleeding profusely. I'm not sure from what. Because I don't think it was the chair shot that bled him. I don't know what it was. But, I mean, he, whatever it was, he fucking sold it. Sold also, like also, weird as hell that this is, like, it's called the WCW International World Heavyweight Championship. It is the big gold belt. But this was a belt exclusively for, like, international promotions that WCW would do. And, like, more so for like you know out of the u.s territory than the wcw world heavyweight championship just very weird i didn't realize that the big gold belt was not always the 
WCW World Heavyweight Championship because you see the one Flair has later. And was only ever held by a non-American wrestler once. Yes. For a total of eight days. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, New Japan pro wrestling legend Hiroshi Hase won it in 1994 and held it for eight total days and then lost it back to Rick Rude. So very weird. We're uh, very weird belt. Uh, history there but this was fun i mean sting and rude obviously two of the icons of the era uh you know sting powering up from the camel clutch into an electric chair was just you know an insane watch i love the comeback spot with roots selling all over the place and sting really stinging up uh and, and you know as his match went on like we always compare mjf to flair as the one-to-one more or less I don't know, man. The rude, rude here and MJF feels very similar, and like they even look a little bit alike too in terms of like the build that they have. Uh, just I don't know. I was getting a lot of MJF vibes coming from Rick Rude, which is you know typically the other way around because Rude came first. Uh, the commissioner is here and seeing all this chicanery, which makes zero sense for a title match. You're like, okay, cool. We're gonna have the babyface win via chair shot interference. And the commissioner is staring at this the entire time. Well, very weird. Was uh, he didn't introduce the chair? He didn't hit him with the chair. No, but like the he whole thing of he was benefiting from the heels being stupid and getting in each other. <laughs> no, I agree. But like, if you're a commissioner, you should want a fair match regardless of circumstances. Absolutely. But I'll say this: uh, Bachwinkle is very much kind of in the mold of like, uh, you know, for a more modern example, the Adam Pierce type of authority figure where he's like kind of a no nonsense guy who, you know, just kind of wants to run the shit efficiently and, and kind of get everything done, you know, is not, is not out here to screw anybody or any, you know, any bullshit, but those guys historically for it to work, generally are going to be sympathetic to the baby faces because they're because the heels are the one causing all the problems with all their chicanery right but, but it's not like rick Ru- so i think if bockwinkle is going to be sympathetic towards sting here now that makes sense but like this is a circumstance where rude does not have an affiliation with racer vader in fact vader is the one calling next on whoever wins i know but he's also interfering to help out rick rude you know, he doesn't get in there and attack Rick Rude. He gets in there and attacks Sting. He doesn't try to hit Rick Rude with the chair. He tries to hit Sting, you know? So at, at that point, does it matter, right? Does it really matter? It matters to me, damn it. You know what? I'm going to say it. it matters to me because there's a difference between helping the guy win versus trying to get the other guy to lose. It can matter to you, and that is perfectly fine. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, fun match, enjoyable for the most part, because you have two very iconic personalities duking it out. Uh, and, you know, Sting winning is something that I think happens less than we remember on these pay-per-views. Like he, he generally the matches that he's winning are usually against lower tier guys, like except for like that Hogan match we had with him. Uh, but a lot of times when he's in these big matches, you tend to see Sting kind of do the job. But, you know, here Sting goes over. Yes, everyone loves Sting. And let me tell you, Revolution 2024. I'm going to cry. But your boy is going to be crying. Your boy is going to be fucking crying. Um, so, yeah, next up, we've got the bunkhouse match. What is a bunkhouse match, you may ask? 
you wear cowboy boots and jeans and you beat the shit out of each other. That's what a bunkhouse match is. I love a bunkhouse match, by the way. It is bunkhouse buck and Dustin Rhodes. And boy, this fucking – I love this start where Dustin comes up the ramp and then just starts running and he leaps into the ring and dives on the bunkhouse buck. Uh, and just starts it off that way. I thought that was badass. Dustin Rhodes and Bunkhouse Buck going at it. Hammer and Kong to start this match. Um, and this turns into just a fucking, you know, a, you know, a bloodbath, really. It's a classic Rhodes bloodbath. Um, quickly turns into a brawl on the floor. Dustin elbow drops him in the balls. Um, then misses a crossbody, flops onto the floor. Colonel Parker chokes him. Buck breaks a wooden rod over his back, beats the shit out of him. Dustin, as is his birthright as a Rhodes, is leaking blood everywhere. I mean, he fucking, you know, he's, he's, he is juiced right he's now. He's bleeding like his daddy. He's bleeding like his fucking daddy. His daddy taught him how to, the, his dad taught him the, the, the proper fucking blading techniques, the forbidden blading techniques of the Rhodes family. Um, so yeah. Uh, beats the shit out of him, whipping him with the belt, just beating the piss out of this young boy. Um, Buck misses a boot in the corner. Dustin fires up on him, beats him with the belt, hits him with his cowboy boot, just whips him around. Hits, uh, I thought, a, a nice little uh, Rhodes uh, spin on the classic 10 punches in the corner. 10 atomic elbow drops in the corner. I like that. Um, that's 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 the Rhodes way to do it. Um he uh, hits the, it, it, the running bulldog out of the corner, which at the time was his finisher. But he lets go of the pin like a fucking moron to go after Colonel Robert Parker, who had gotten up on the apron to distract him. Uh, he suplexes Parker into the ring. He beats him with the belt. Uh, but then the finish is weird here. Um, Buck is in the ropes. Rhodes goes after him. Colonel Robert Parker gets the referee to step in and like get in his way because he's because Buck is in the ropes. Even though it's a no DQ match, the referee is has no authority to get in anybody's way for any reason. He's just there to count the pin. Um, but he still does this. That allows Colonel Parker to slip a foreign object to Bunkhouse Buck. That Buck puts in his fist and knocks him out with it. And Bunkhouse Buck gets the uh, pin and wins the match. 14 minutes and 17 seconds. It is a finish that makes sense in a match where there are disqualifications. We've seen this finish a billion times, mm -hmm. right? Uh, best Juice does it the best. In slip a foreign object. But it's a no DQ match. You don't need to slip anything to anybody. You don't need to do anything behind the ref's back. You can fucking bring a gun to the ring and shoot him in the fucking head. There's nothing you can do. So why is why do they why are they doing this fucking subterfuge? And why is the ref stepping in and getting in the way? He he has no authority to do that whatsoever under the rules of this fucking match. Fuck you. Makes no sense. Stupid bullshit, folks. Stupid ass bullshit. It's like a lot of times it feels like they just forget the rules they've established and just kind of go with whatever they think is like, mean, right. It's like they I'm sure. Bunkhouse Buck and whoever have, have done this finish a bunch of times. So they're just like, yeah, we'll do this finish. And didn't actually think about how it would make no sense under the rules of this match. Because it doesn't. It makes no sense. None. You think Buck snorts a real place? Um, I believe it actually is. Huh. 
Uh, he's not the only, uh, 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 there's a, 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 quite a few pro wrestlers have used Bucksnort, Tennessee as like a place name for their, where they're from. I know Mance Warner does that now. On okay. The, uh, he's from Bucksnort, Tennessee. He, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those places. It's not quite like parts unknown, but it is one of those places that is used. You if know? you know, you know. It is uh, a real place. I can't confirm that it is. Cause I remember I've looked it up before. Finish aside though, this is more my style of like a hardcore match. I love the one by two strikes, uh, breaking it over, uh, Dustin's back and it just explodes. Them whipping, taking off the belts and just whipping each other with it and then using the metal part of the belt to like load your punch. Love that stuff. You know, Dustin obviously bleeding like a rose all over his white shirt and blonde hair. Always great. And you know, there's a really good, uh, clothesline bu- uh, bu- buck hits on Dustin where Dustin does the full Kevin Owens flips uh, on the cell. Just uh, sells the hell out of it. I enjoyed it. Just an absolute brawl. I love a good buckhouse match. It always feels like they're just they're there to beat the shit out of each other. And they really do that every time in a good way. That feels like it's like a barroom brawl. Yeah, the finish is kind of dumb. But man, I, I this was way this was way more my sweet. I love a buckhouse match. Yeah, I uh, it's it's one of the cardinal rules of pro wrestling. If a guy comes out for a no DQ match or a hardcore match or whatever the fuck, uh, you know, and, and someone comes out to one of those matches wearing whites, you know what's about to happen, baby. Oh, yeah. You know that motherfucker's got a that motherfucker's got a razor blade stuck somewhere in his gear, and he's about to pull that shit out. And if there's a Rhodes or a flare, if there's a Rhodes or a flare in there, you know what's happening. Yeah, I, you I, know what's about to happen. I also just love Bunkhouse Buck as like random guy from the '90s. He's just like, you know, the gimmick. Is he a great worker? Necessarily, not really. Is he a great promo? Not really. Is he entirely memorable? Not really. But it's just like. A very niche gimmick that always felt good for, like, whenever he was on screen. Uh, but also want to shout him out as Jack Swagger Sr. Yes, I was going <laughs> to mention that, yeah. One of the weirdest, like, cameos in WWE history is in 2010, right, I think it was? They brought Bunkhouse Buck back as Jack Swagger Sr., which is, like, how – I wonder how they ended up settling on Bunkhouse Buck <laughs> Because they could – I don't think he ever actually like wrestled doing it, right? No. I think he appeared in a couple segments or whatever. And it was like – or like maybe maybe it was even just like one segment, you know? And it was like you could have gotten anybody, any old guy to do this, right? Mm-hmm. They said – why were they just like, yeah, let's get Bunkhouse Buck for that? Because <laughs> like this guy was on – you know, was signed to a major company for years, you know? Like – how did they? How did they end up settling on Bunkhouse Buck? I love the fact that they did settle on that because think you Jack Swagger could have brought the gimmick back. You could have had Jack Swagger be the like Bunkhouse Jack next. It would have been so much cooler if they actually said, "Yeah, uh, Jack Swagger." As it turns out, is remember Bunkhouse Buck? It's his son. That would be so cool. That would went way better. Like that would have been crazy. Like that would have been such a just like. That would have been such a, a great little cameo for the for the hardcores if they were like, oh, yeah, by the way, he's Bunkhouse Buck's son. It's not really relevant, but it's just kind of cool to know. You know what I mean? <laughs> but no, like they had him be Jack Swagger's dad. And I just thought that was like, again, how did they end up uh, focus, like settling on Bunkhouse Buck for that? I really don't know. I, I want to know how that <laughs> came about, really. Uh. So that was cool. That was cool. Um, <laughs> next up. 
We've got a uh, big boy match. This match is big and for the boys. Um, it is Vader. It's a grudge match between the man they call Vader and the boss. Of course, also known as the big boss man. Uh, big boss man. Uh, you know, it's it's just two big old motherfuckers having a fucking big slop fest and they're beating each other up and it's, you know, it's exactly what you expect it to be. Um, boss man charges him up the ramp, clotheslines him into the ring. They fight back up the ramp. They fight all over the ramp, fight in the ring, out of the ring. Uh, Vader leaps over the top rope for a splash coming up. Vader, Vader running up the ramp and like leaping over the top rope to do that splash into the ring was crazy fucking sight. The guy who was a legit 400 plus pounds doing that. Um, Boss man gets the knees up on it, which I'm sure had to fucking hurt like a bit. <laughs> uh, Close lines him to the floor, no disqualification, uh, and then throws him over the barricade. Big body slam by boss man on Vader in the ring. Boss man hits a couple big slams on Vader that gets a big reaction. You know, anytime you slam a big guy like that, it's going to get a reaction. Uh, Vader's eye is bust up here. He is bleeding. Uh, Vader backdrops boss man out to the floor over the top rope. Exact same thing as what happened in the Austin Muda match. That was the finish of that match. No disqualification. Uh, and then suplexes him back in. Big running splash by Vader for a two count. Boss man comes back with a big back suplex. And Vader comes out of the corner with a big clothesline. It's just basically two monster trucks colliding in the center of the ring for about 10 minutes. Um, we've got, yeah, so that happens. He goes up for the moonsault. Vader, go, Vader goes up for his big moonsault. Boss man just grabs him, throws him off the top rope. Then hits kind of like, like a weird looking either middle rope DDT or very high angle suplex where he just kind of doesn't really fully get him over for a near fall. Really bad looking dive off the top rope for a near fall. He goes up for the top rope again. Vader catches him into what looks like a very dangerous power slam because it doesn't look like Vader ever really caught him or got any control of him. He just kind of whips him down. Um, Vader goes up, hit the Vader bomb. Boss man kicks out. And then Vader goes all the way up. One of the most spectacular sights you'll ever see. 400-plus pound Vader hitting the moonsault and getting the pin. Vader wins in 9 minutes and 18 seconds. Afterwards, Boss man gets out the fucking nightstick, beats up Vader, especially beats the shit out of Harley Race with the nightstick until WCW Commissioner Nick Bockwinkle gets in the ring and kind of separates them. And then afterwards, we get a promo segment with Jesse Ventura, with Bockwinkle and Bossman. Nick Bockwinkle, himself a legendary wrestler back in the 70s and the 80s, uh, admonishes Bossman for... Using the nightstick and beating the shit out of everybody with it, he says, you know, you know what? I am I'm taking away the nightstick, I'm taking away the handcuffs, and you are no longer the boss. You can't just beat the shit out of people with the nightstick willy-nilly. We're so you know what? We're taking your toy away from you, boss man. And the reason why they were doing this is because WWF had trademarked the big boss man character and they had threatened legal action over WCW continuing to use the character with the nightstick and the handcuffs and all that shit. 
So they had threatened legal action, and WCW is saying, all right, we will, we will in fact cease and desist here. That leads to the repackaging of Big Boss Man as the Guardian Angel wearing the fucking red beret. Uh, really stupid gimmick. Yep. Uh, but yeah, that's what le- that that that's that is why that happened. If you ever listen to any of our other episodes in like 94, 95 WCW, we talk about the Guardian Angel. That is why he's the Guardian Angel and not the big boss man gimmick. Yeah, I mean, I get the rationale uh, behind the scenes, but like in the moment where it's like, yeah, you can't be doing this to heels just because you want to. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of the entire babyface gimmick of it all. Yeah, it's like I. I've always been under the impression that even if you're if you're a babyface, you can do whatever you want to a heel, and it's okay because they're a heel. You want to beat the shit out of a heel with a nightstick? It's fine, you know. <laughs> but you know they they have to they have to make sense of this somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess this is as as reasonable as anything, right? I don't know. Yeah, uh, you know this was fine. Like it's Vader, boss man. Um, it's, well, it's like I said, it's two monster trucks colliding in the middle of the ring, and it's. It's kind of sloppy. Yeah. Um, at times, maybe more than a little bit dangerous for one or both of the guys in it, but they come out of it fine. And, you know, it's it's a spectacle. Yeah, I, I, I'm i kind of on that track, too. Like, it's less big, meaty men slapping me and more so like, hey, you know, these guys are big and it's they, there's a lot of slop. Uh, I didn't think either of them necessarily looked great. Um, but like, it was really interesting to see boss man take it to vader right off the bat because that's something that doesn't really happen a lot in vader matches is vader's usually not playing off the back foot it's usually him in control from start to finish it's very rare that you would see vader in the ring with someone his fucking size because Mm -hmm. he's the fucking monster uh but yeah like for what it was good enough uh i wish it was a little bit better but you know I, there's not much complaint other than like Bachwinkle following this match up with like yeah i'm just gonna take this away from you because yeah you know <laughs> again it's we talked about Bachwinkle as kind of like the adam pierce style like stern no nonsense authority figure right and it's like hey you know that 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 works both ways you know he's going to be you know, sympathetic to the baby faces because they're the good guys and they're not the ones causing problems. But if a baby face starts causing problems, you know, he's 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 got to come down on him. You have to you have to you have to be fair here. And that's that's the main thing. You got to be fair. How excited are you? Man. How excited are you that they are finally, finally, after years of just doing a very generic Smackdown versus Raw Survivor Series, that they're actually going to tell a feud between Nick Aldis and Adam Pierce? I I was shocked to learn that Nick Aldis and Adam Pierce never wrestled each other. That's I, wow. I really would have thought that they would have linked up at some point. I mean, Aldis and, and Pierce wrestled for years, and they overlapped, you know, on the indies. Uh, I was I was very surprised to learn. I I want to see I want to see him mix it up. You know, I want to see him mix it up. You know, we we haven't seen like they they've they've alluded several times over the last few years that Pierce has been on TV to the fact that he was himself a very good pro wrestler in the in his day. Mm-hmm. He's they've never like used that. I want to let's let's get let's get Pierce versus all this. Let's get Pierce and all this in the fucking War Games match. Let's have them let's have them both in the match. I would actually really fuck with that. I would too. Like remember when Pierce looked like it was gonna be Pierce versus Reigns at a pay per view? Yeah, but then it was like <laughs> they like they didn't even like I think. What he wrestled somebody, right? He wrestled in like a fa- he wrestled in like a gauntlet match, and he was like the last entrant. And Roman essentially beat the shit out. I forget who he pinned. But they they made they made Pierce look super weak in that. Though. Yes, they yeah. did. Uh, and, and then being KO at the Rumble. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was like, 
No, like, I'm not buying this. Like, I've seen Adam Pierce wrestle. He was good. He was, like, legit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I was like, come on, man. Like, you got you can't do him like this, you know? Like, you can't talk about, like, oh, yeah, Adam Pierce was a pro wrestler, and he was, like, le- le- legit, like, good, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and then do him like this, you know? Yeah, and you know what? I, you sold me on it. Even if it's just a traditional Survivor Series five-on-five match with, like, all Captain Team Aldis versus Team Pierce, that, that would wet my whistle enough. Let's get let's get that boy back in there. Let's get Scrap Daddy Adam Pierce back in there, folks. Uh, but yeah, um, I I do appreciate that they at least you know make something that kind of makes sense out of uh, like the, them them legally being forced to change out of the Big Boss Man gimmick, uh, and that also serves to kind of get over Bockwinkle as a uh, as a a stern authority figure that people people still respect, right? Yes. Um, I, I I thought that was you know hey that's that's fine that's fine you know if you got to do something this is as good as anything, um, and this match was, you know again it was it was a spectacle and that's what you love to see. So that will take us to our main event of the evening. It is the legend. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat challenging Ric Flair one more time for the WSW World Heavyweight Championship. Five years since their legendary match at 1989 Chi-Town Rumble in this very building in which Ricky Steamboat won the WCW title against Ric Flair in perhaps the greatest wrestling match of the 1980s. And... These guys are, you know, not necessarily in their prime anymore. I mean, still somewhat close to it, still can go, but not necessarily in their athletic prime anymore. Steamboat, of course, only has a few months left in his active wrestling career. He retires after 94 due to injuries. Um, so most of this match is Steamboat. Up on Flair. I mean, like, really, Ric Flair doesn't get much in this match. It's really Ric Flair selling for Steamboat. Um, They wrestle around. Ricky gives him a really big slap that has the whole crowd. They all gasp in unison at Ricky's slap. Top five slap that we've had. That was uh, the fucking sound on that shit. He slapped the shit out of that boy. Um, And the whole, like, first ten minutes of this match is, like, Steamboat working a headlock, and then they'll, like, run a spot where Flair gets out of it, and then they do this and that, and then at the end, Steamboat gets back to the headlock. And they do this, like, at the end of every single, every single spot, Ricky Steamboat is able to find his way back to this headlock, outsmarting Ric Flair at every single turn. Um, Eventually, uh, Ricky Steamboat misses a dropkick, um, and Flair starts lighting him up with the chops and then Steamboat fires back. There's a lot of back and forth chops here. Um, but again, really not much offense from Flair. Um, they end up spilling over the top rope to the floor and we get stuff on the floor. You know, Ricky Steamboat goes for a dive, misses, spills over the guardrail into the first row. They get back in the ring, but it's Steamboat again who beats him to the punch, hits him with a superplex lights him up with a bunch of chops. There's a spot where he hits him with a bunch of chops in the corner, and then Flair comes out and does the Flair flop and splats on his face, goes for the pin. Flair gets his foot on the rope. Um, 
Ricky Steamboat actually is the first guy to lock in the figure four as well in this match. Um, Flair goes for one of his jumping knee drops. Steamboat catches the knee and then grabs him and turns it into the figure four. That spot was really, really good. Um, they, you know, they, they, they really work the shit out of this figure four. you know, Flair almost gets to the ropes and then Steamboat drags him back into the middle of the ring. They do that a couple of times, but then, uh, eventually Flair is able to just pop him in the face and get out. Um, 20 plus minutes now in, you know, we get a series of near falls, a bunch of roll-ups back and forth, a bunch of chops exchanged again. Uh, we end up, you know, going onto the ramp again. We go back outside again. As always, Steamboat getting the better of him. Steamboat hits a big diving crossbody in the ring for a near fall. And then Flair gets up, comes out of the corner, hits a big clothesline. And him hitting this clothesline gets a big cheer from the crowd because there are a lot of Ric Flair fans in the crowd. And he's gotten, like, no offense this entire match. Like, he's given his fans in the crowd, like, nothing to cheer for. The so, crowd was very split this entire match, too. A big pop for this one clothesline, because it's like, oh, yeah, Flair hasn't done anything. He's just getting beaten up this whole match by Steamboat. Um, we get the, the, the spot that we get in every single Flair match, where Flair goes up to the top rope for the uh, crossbody, and then the guy gets up and throws him off the top rope, and he lands on the floor, or he, he splats, on the, splats on the mat. Um, so that, the, that, that spot that has happened in every single Ric Flair match in history. Um, Steamboat goes to the big diving splash, misses. Flair then finally locks in the figure four leg lock, but Steamboat gets to the rope, goes for the figure four again, Steamboat reverses him into a cradle for a big near fall. Again, more chops from Steamboat. He hits another big superplex on Flair, but they both are down. He takes forever to get over to try and pin him, and Flair's able to kick out. Uh, we get the ref getting knocked over. We get like a little ref bump here on an O'Connor roll where the ref gets knocked over. Ref recovers late and ends up uh, Flair kicks out. Steamboat, call back to the Chi-Town Rumble match here, locks in his old double chicken wing submission that he hadn't used in quite a while. Uh, this was the, 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 the hold that he finished the Chi-Town Rumble match with, double chicken wing. Um, but then, and then he, he locks him in the uh, submission and then kind of rolls him back into a bridging pin. The referee counts three. First, everyone thinks that Steamboat has won the title, but when you when you watch it, both sets of shoulders were actually down. Flair was down in the uh, in this kind of, you know, sort of backslide type position. But Steamboat underneath him trying to bridge, his shoulders are also down. And so the referees argue. Uh, you get Nick Bockwinkle getting into the ring. They all talk to it. You hear the referees saying both sets of shoulders were down. And it ends up being a draw on a double pin in 32 minutes and 21 seconds, they actually announce Flair as the winner, but that's not correct. Bockwinkle does get on uh, the headsets with Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan at the end saying it is a draw. It was a double pin. There is no winner, but the title goes back to Flair. Um, and they would do the rematch a few days later on WCW Saturday night. And Flair would later win to retain the title uh, officially. But uh, yeah, we get a double pin here, uh, a finish that goes over like a wet fart with the crowd. Our, our third fuck finish, too. What do you guess? Our third fuck finish of the day. 
And yeah, the crowd was uh, not interested. Yeah, this like the finish stunk, but I actually like objectively, like you said at the beginning of the pod, this is the worst meal you get at a five star restaurant, which is still very good. I actually really enjoyed the fact that a lot of this match was Flair's offense being extremely low effort and really kind of getting beat to shit by the babyface steamboat. You mentioned before that, you know, heels should never look like on the level of a babyface or, or in that way. And like, you know, I think you're right in terms of like it shouldn't be a given, but there is something that made this match more interesting because of this circumstance where, you know, it looked like the uh, Steamboat ha- really had Flair's number and it makes sense because, you know, they've had so many matches. You figure that the heels tricks are eventually going to, you know, he's going to run out of tricks. And in this case, you know, Flair's not really operating as a full-fledged heel. Like, he's very... And, you know, the crowd really kind of reacts to him. There's a lot of people in the crowd cheering for Flair. Yeah, being in that more of that tweener role. And it leads to a very interesting dynamic that, you know, it it was entertaining. I enjoyed the fact that, like, Flair, essentially, the story of this match is Flair gets his ass beat pillar to post. Steamboat really is, like, dominating this match. Flair has options, but a lot of what Flair has done is not so much expend any energy, and you kind of, I don't know, it feels like you could argue that Steamboat getting his own shoulders to the mat when hitting the chicken wing is by the fact that he had expent so much energy throughout the entire match. He You're saying that Ric Flair basically rope-a-doped Ricky Steamboat this entire match? Yes. Ric Flair was just there to absorb the punishment, but he wasn't exerting himself because he knew he could had to go the distance with Steamboat. The old the old Homer Simpson strategy for Ric Flair. <laughs> I, but, you know, I thought the rationale made sense. It would have been a Flair strategy. Be like, okay, cool. I'm going to let this guy get so freaking tired of beating my ass because I've taken ass beatings before. And at the end, you know, obviously it led to, you know, this double finish where Steamboat still hits the win. But I don't know. I, I, I thought it made sense as a strategy. Maybe you can. I, I, don't, I don't really see uh, any reason to. to see it that way but i guess you know if you want to read very deep between the lines maybe you can maybe you can find your way to that explanation for why this match was like this i don't know i obviously like again it's it's like you said best your worst meal at a five-star restaurant it's still better than most wrestling matches you're going to see and you know these guys are you know steamboat is one of the most technically fucking perfect wrestlers to ever grace a wrestling ring uh he's an icon flair is an icon um, and one of the one of the best wrestlers of all time, but it just this one kind of fell flat for me, and I think it was just because you know Flair gets nothing in it. Mm-hmm. So he's not he's not like overtly healing it up like he would in a lot of other matches, but he is the heel here. Steamboat is as pure of a babyface as you will ever find, um, and there's a reason why heels get heat during a match it's so it's it's to get the crowd back up when the baby face you know gets on the offensive mm-hmm. make when the baby face is getting that offense it makes it more meaningful you know what i mean mm-hmm. baby face just beating up the heel the whole time it's like okay that's great but like there's you know it's it's just that like this very like kind of like ambient level of energy yes a simmer you know, it's just at a simmer the whole time and it never really gets up or down. It's just kind of you're, you kind of end up watching the same stuff over and over for 32 minutes. And then you get an unsatisfying finish. Yeah. It's like a, like the stuff these guys are doing in the ring is very, very well worked. Um, and they, you know, have unparalleled chemistry in there. 
but it just I, I didn't really like the way the match was structured. It didn't really it, it didn't really hook me. Whereas like talk about the Shy Town Rumble match, that match has me on the edge of my fucking oh, seat. Oh yeah. That... For every fucking second of it, edge of my seat. And there there's, you know, there's there's momentum swings and back and forth, and there's moments where you think that Flair's gonna win. You never feel for a second that Flair has a sh- a chance of winning this match. For a second. You never feel that way. No, and and like in the Chaito Rumble match, there's a definitive finish. It's not a definitive finish. Um, and, and you know, I think you're not wrong either. My and my, part of the reason why I enjoyed like my perspective of the match is that it makes a ton of sense that Steamboat is also like trying to do everything he can to really put down Flair, not giving Flair an inch. Like I, I think that that also helps sell the story to me. But I understand like the whole psychology of the ring. Like you want to have. Like, look at Regal Pillman, like perfect example of a heel, you know, generating that heat to make the baby face come back that much more exciting. We don't really get that. It's always Steamboat really just whipping Flair's ass. Yeah. And and, and the fact that that this match happens the way it does and has the finish it does leaves that that even more uh, of a bad taste in your mouth. There's a. You know, I know it, it can feel very formulaic at times, and I know as a wrestler, it feels formulaic sometimes. Um, but there's a reason why that basic structure of shine heat comeback that you are, you are, you know, taught from the very beginning and you see it in every match and people do different spins on it and people do different things, but at its core, you know, almost every wrestling match, you will see some version of the shine heat comeback, you know, that, that basic formula as just kind of a bare bones, you know, you know, like, like kind of just a, like, like the backbone of what you're doing. There's a reason why that exists, right? There's a reason why that exists uh, because it's, it's just a very, it's, it's, it's a way to kind of turn it into a roller coaster back. And, mm-hmm. and like, I think the biggest tension point in this entire match too, is a spot where flares up top and like trying to lock in the figure four and you have steamboat like blocking and holding off the figure four, but he can't keep it like he can't keep it off. And you get that submission and it lasts forever, it feels like. And, you know, I, it, it almost feels like they're trying to get to that spot in the match where like the crowd gets up for that spot with Flair being the heel. I don't know. But I did love like you never see a guy just grab the foot in a figure four to stop the figure four from being put yeah, on. I've and it's just very fun. A few times I've seen that a few times, but it's not something you see very regularly, you know. Um, and it's, it's cool. It's, and it's, it's a, I feel like it's a good visual too. You know what I mean? Like he's just barely like, he's almost got it on, but he's just, you're just barely fucking holding on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a good visual. Um, and I, yeah, I, I didn't mention that, but yeah, that they, they do work that a little bit and it's, it's really good. But yeah, um, again, this match is, it's, it's the best match on the show. You know, and it's it's super well. I love the whole first part of them, you know, running all these spots and getting steam up back to headlock. I thought that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's it's just you, you know that they have so much better in them because you've seen them have so many much better matches than this one. Yeah. So that will take us to our two and a half marks. Angelo, go fucking get him, boy. <laughs> My negative half mark is going to Nick Bockwinkle. I hated authority fig- figure Nick Bockwinkle. I thought it was, I thought his rationale didn't make sense. I thought his rulings were kind of silly outside of the Flair Steamboat one, which was the only good decision he made. But everything else that he was involved with kind of felt 
either forced or arbitrary and like the he's out there for most of the entire card and like so he's witnessing how these matches are being ruled and like you've brought up you know the over the top rope disqualification was very loosely enforced except one certain instance at the end of the day as the authority figure who controls everything in kayfabe you have authority over the referees and him really kind of like picking and choosing his spots of where to really criticize these matches. It made no sense. It's the one thing that like we've appreciated with Adam Pierce is that Adam Pierce has been relatively consistent with his rulings. It felt like just on this pay-per-view, Bockwinkle was all over the place. So negative half mark to Nick Bockwinkle. Uh, my one mark is going to a high energy babyface versus a lazy heel. We don't have enough lazy heels in wrestling today. A lot of heels are like edgy or trying to be cool. Like look at Bullet Club. Look at uh, you know the Judgment Day. They're cool heels. We need lazy corny heels. Like like that's uh, I mentioned the Flair Steamboat match and why I appreciated it. But you also kind of see it with Root Sting. You see it with Steve Austin Muda. You see it with Regal Pillman. You have heels who are just literally just trying to get by with doing the minimum amount of work. And you have a baby face who's literally giving it their all to try and get the ti- rest of the title away. Or, yeah, rest of the title away. I think all of those uh, in all those cases, the heel was the title holder. Uh, rest of the title away from the heel. And every case, the heel retains, except for, you know, staying rude. But, you know, it, it helps sell the story of a match, even if there are different flavors of lazy heels. Like, it didn't feel like Ric Flair was doing Steve Austin that was doing uh, Regal. They're all very unique characters, even though, like, the whole premise of their heel work is, like, I want to do the least amount of work necessary to hold on to this title. And it that just makes sense. We don't have enough lazy heels in wrestling. It's what made MJF a great heel champion was the fact that I don't want to show up more than I have to. I'll only show up when I need to. Uh, yeah. Not to say I don't enjoy babyface MJF, but it, it made heel MJF a lot more a lot, really understandable. It is uh, it's crazy that you're I, I don't really agree with what you're saying, to be honest, but I'm not. You know, this is this is your this is this is your uh, this is your truth and you can live your truth, Angelo. Mm-hmm. Uh He's, Rick Flair was like the hardest working motherfucker ever. No, no, I, I, no, I agree. I'm not saying Flair didn't. I'm not saying Rick Flair himself. And fucking anybody went harder than anybody, basically. Ever. <laughs> I, I mean, like, but he talking? was a, he was a chicken shit heel though. That's the whole thing. Like he cheated to kind of win. Like that's that that's. I'm not saying that Flair was lazy. I'm not saying that Regal was lazy. I'm just saying like the perspective of defending the title was like they want to do the quote-unquote least amount of work, which means taking shortcuts, wrestling as least uh, as, uh, you know, Flair maybe being an exception, not wanting to defend the title at a rate that maybe a, a, a open challenge babyface champion would. Uh, it, it's just like the philosophy of like, the best way for me to hold on to this title is to take every shortcut I can and defend it as least often as possible. Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, and then, you know, that you have the high-age babyface like, I can't believe you're holding this title hostage. Um, and then my two marks is going to this WCW intro package. Like I said at the top of the show, it, it really felt like sports entertainment. They really sold every match that was like a dream matchup or a big time feud or like a grudge match or a special attraction match. It all blended together. And it wasn't like anything over the top complicated like you see with some of these WWE intro packages for a pay-per-view like Hell in a Cell where they're talking about all this edgy stuff. And they're not really explaining the feuds necessarily. They're just kind of showing highlight clips 
of the feud so far, but not really explaining what the whole story was. This is just like, hey, we have this match and you're going to see what this match is about. And this is match is happening. And this is what this match is about. They did a very good job keeping it simple and really outlining what this pay-per-view is and why you bought the pay-per-view. And so I thought that was really nice to have. So two marks that WCW intro package. Sure. I'm going to give a uh, half mark to the integrity of uh, Mick Foley's spine. <laughs> Again, every single time I watched anything with uh, Foley before, you know, pre-WWF, and even after WWF, you would do this sometimes. He is taking so many fucking bumps on the concrete that I cannot believe the man is, like, alive, let alone able to walk. I mean, he, he can barely walk. I mean, I've seen him, but, like, he can actually still, he's like not in a wheelchair. The fact, like, this guy, his his bones are made out of fucking, like, steel, you know? Like, it's it's truly in, uh, inconceivable. Like, I fucking took, like, five bumps yesterday and my neck is sore, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, what the fuck, man? What, what, is, what is the fucking deal, bro? Let's not forget, like, probably my one of my earliest memories of Foley and your, well, probably one of your earliest memories of Foley is him getting speared through a table onto the floor that was on fire. Yes, that was, <laughs> I was like, yeah, that was, like, my first memory. In, like, 2005. <laughs> yeah, when he was like, yes, you know, a decade, a full decade of taking bumps like this Later, he's still doing that shit. What a fucking madman! I mean, he's one of the one of the greatest of all time. Um, I already mentioned this already, but one mark to when a motherfucker turns up in a hardcore match and he's wearing a white T-shirt. You're like, oh boy, I know what's about to happen. Uh, and especially when when it's a Rhodes, uh, you know, you know that Dusty taught him again the forbidden secret blading techniques. Um, so yeah, I mean, when, when, when someone shows up wearing any kind of white gear, like when I'm um, fucking, when they did the dog collar match between punk and uh, MJF, and oh, punk yes. wearing his old, like ring of honor, white basketball shorts that he used to wrestle in. Um, and, but you saw this motherfucker's wearing white gear, folks, you know, what's you know, what's about to happen. Uh, you know, <laughs> what, what, what's, what's about to be going on here. You know what this shit's about to be about. Um, and then I'm going to give my, uh, two marks to, uh, a site, the likes of which very rarely ever seen its equal in pro wrestling, the Vader moonsault, a man that, oh my gosh, uh, in 1994 too, he was starting to get up there a little bit. He had been, you know, uh, wrestling at a very, very high level for a very long time, having some absolutely fucking grueling fucking, he's almost 40 years old here. This man is almost 40 years old and is 400 build at 450. And honestly, I'd fucking believe it looking at him. Uh, and he's hitting a really nice looking moonsault. It's the height he gets on the moonsault. I mean, I it's he's a fucking freak of nature. I mean, they just do not make human beings like him, man. Like on the scale of uh, a Montez Ford frog splash height. Versus a Lita Moonsault height. He's very much closer to the Montez Ford it's Frog true. Splash height. You are dead on, man. <laughs> you are dead on. There is something about watching a pro wrestler who is just such a fucking freak of nature that you're just like, yeah, like, I, that guy's not even the same species as I am. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I as a wrestler, have things that I'm very good at, but... There's no way I could fucking do that shit. I, I, I could never be Vader. That guy is a different fucking animal. 
He's a, he is in a different genus than I am. Do you think know? Otis could do a moonsault? Um, I don't know. I mean, he's a pretty athletic guy. Uh, I feel like probably no, but I would I would I would be willing to be wrong. Uh, I would I would love to be wrong there. So that will wrap up our coverage of Spring Stampede '94. So that'll bring us to the last order of business. I'm going to pull up the randomizer and see what we're going to be watching next time on the pod. So, Angelo, as I get this going, what do you want to see? You know what? It's been a minute since we had some death of WCW. I think that could be really fun to do. Um, I also want to take this time to shout out something that we don't normally shout out. The return of TNA, which I know you popped hard yes, for oh last night. God, dude, I'm so fucking excited. <laughs> so I'll give you that softball because I saw that come up on my feed. I'm like, oh, okay. And then I saw you quote to him like, David's fucking popped. I was absolutely fucking rolling, brother. I was losing my fucking mind. So excited. So happy. Um, yeah, I, I'm so excited to be able to watch TNA again, dude. It's crazy. Well, we are not going to death of WCW, but we are going to uh, kind of maybe the peak of WCW's popularity throughout 1997. We are going to WCW Great American Bash 1997, featuring a Falls Count Anywhere match between Randy Savage and DDP in the main event. Okay. The Outsiders versus Ric Flair and Roddy Piper. Uh, Chris Benoit versus Meng. We've got Akira Hokuto, Japanese legend Akira Hokuto wrestling on this show. Um, pretty fucking, uh, Conan versus Hugh Morris. Why do we, why is Steelers Bears on my pay-per-view? Yes. Kevin Green, who was actually a surprisingly good pro wrestler, uh, for a guy who like only ever wrestled like once, um, here on this show and a match that will have me. Completely too messy, going going crazy. Leading off, Ultimo Dragon versus Psychosis in what is sure to be a wonderful cruiserweight match. So, yeah, that'll be next time on the Two and a Half Hours Podcast, WCW Great American Bash 97. So, my good friend Angelo and Lisa, my name is David Staffan. Thanks, everybody. For listening.